You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel, and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty-two years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho, He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Zagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks be to God for His grace and kindness in gathering us here this morning to continue our sermon series through the book of First Kings. Uh, now, it's a very short passage before us this morning. It only spans six and a half chapters. So we've got a lot of, a lot of work to do uh, this morning. In fact, I timed my sermon last night and it was way too long. And so I went through a very brutal editing process. There were many casualties, one of which was my intro. And so apologies, no intro. We're getting straight into it. So... Turn with me to 1 Kings, uh, chapter 16. Uh, We're continuing our sermon series in the book of 1 Kings, looking at the kings of Israel. Week one, we looked at Solomon. And Solomon, in one sense, is a real high point in the history of Israel as a nation. Under Solomon, and Solomon was David's son, under Solomon we see the nation unified, and we see the temple of the Lord built, a dwelling place for Yahweh, the Lord God, a place for the people of God to worship Yahweh. Though tragically we see under Solomon as well, uh, that he, he rebels against the Lord. He breaks the covenant and God promises judgment for his rebellion. And that judgment we saw play out last week as we looked at the rule and reign of Jeroboam as he becomes the first king of the northern kingdom. So Israel as a nation is divided. We have the northern kingdom that goes by Israel, 10 tribes in the north. And we have the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, two tribes in the south. And so last week, Michael took us through chapters 11 to 14 and we looked at Jeroboam, this king of Israel. And we saw that Jeroboam's rule and reign as king, it was founded on a promise that God gave him, that if he was faithful to the Lord and to his covenant, that he would build a dynasty through his line. And yet things quickly deteriorated, as you would remember. 
being in the, the north, uh, Jeroboam was, was nervous. He was anxious that if the people returned to the south to worship in the temple, because the temple was in the southern kingdom, he was concerned if they went to the temple to worship, then their allegiance would be shifted from, uh, from him as king uh, to Rehoboam in the south. And so what did he do? Uh, he was innovative. He innovated the way that the nation worshipped, which is never a good idea. Right, he, he built golden calves and said, this is the Lord your God that took you out of slavery in Egypt. He created different feasts. And there was some attempt to connect it to Yahweh and the, the religion of, of Israel. Uh, but ultimately, he failed as a king. He was a wicked king that led the people astray. And when we finish the account of the rule and reign of Jeroboam, we, the readers, are left thinking, geez, could things get any worse? Could there be a worse king than Jeroboam? Well, this morning in our text, we find the answer. And the answer to that question is yes, and his name is King Ahab. And so this morning, we're going to read about King Ahab and his wife, the Queen Jezebel, in these chapters before us. Now, just a a warning, we're going to be moving at a pretty quick uh, pace through these chapters. So uh, buckle up, it might feel like you're on a bit of a roller coaster. And we're not going to go through each individual verse, there is simply no time. I think the Bible reading for these verses goes for about 40 minutes. And so I was tempted to press play on the Bible reading, but... I'll actually give you, I'll give you a sermon, but I encourage you in your own time right, to actually go back and read all the verses and all that God has for us in these chapters. But for this morning, I'll be doing lots of narrating or summarizing the narrative just so we can move through and you can get a bit of an overview. But this will feel a little bit like you're drinking from a fire hydrant, so full warning, full disclosure. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we get stuck into these chapters. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the fact that it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so, Lord, we pray this morning by the power of your spirit, you would do that work in our hearts, that you would discern our thoughts and intentions, that you would pierce us, that you would reveal sin, that you would deepen our awareness of it, that you would lead us all the more to Christ, that we would rejoice in him, and we'd be in awe of all that he has done for us as our true king. And in his name we pray. Amen. King Ahab, three things we need to see to understand the rule and reign of King Ahab. Firstly, rebellion. Secondly, revelation. And thirdly, repentance. Rebellion, revelation, repentance. Firstly, rebellion. Pick it up with me in chapter 16, verse 29. See, in verse 29, we learn that Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom, and his rule and reign spanned 22 years, which actually was quite a long time in the history of Israel's kings. Now, the crown did not pass directly from Jeroboam, who we looked at last week, uh, to Ahab. Actually, many kings were between the two of them in a pretty short period of time. And often the kings would, would take the throne after killing the previous king, right? And it kind of speaks to the kind of decline that has happened in the northern kingdom in, in Israel uh, after the rule and reign of Jeroboam. And so here we see Ahab now uh, reigning for 22 years uh, over the northern kingdom in, in Israel. And we're not left wondering for too long what kind of king he was. Pick it up in verse 20, 30. It says this, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. What does that mean? Jeroboam was bad, all right? He was a wicked and evil king, but Ahab, he takes wickedness and evil as the king to the next level. He takes covenant breaking to the next level. So what made him so wicked? What made him so evil? Well, the first thing we actually see was who he married. We see here it says, And he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. 
Now, if we're familiar with the commands that God has given his people when they enter the promised land, we ought to read that verse and, and kind of see it as a red flag, see it, see it as an alarm. Uh, we ought to be uh, kind of clue on to the fact that that's a big deal. Why? Because God told his people when they entered the promised land, they ought not to marry anyone uh, who worships idols. And the Sidonians, they were people who worshipped idols. And so Ahab clearly is not uh, having a heart to obey the commands of the Lord here. So what is going on? What is he actually trying to do in marrying uh, Jezebel? Well, many commentators think that Jezebel here has, sorry, Ahab has in mind here, not uh, clearly not obeying the Lord, but he has political realities in mind, right? So at this time, historical context, Assyria is this growing uh, nation. It's a powerful army. and, And many commentators think that Ahab looks around and goes, well, we could be in trouble here if these guys attack and invade, so we need an ally, all right? And they look to the north to see the Sidonians, and he thinks, what a great kind of people to, to partner with as, as an ally. And what better way to cement the alliance than to marry the crown princess of the king, Ethbaal, which happens to be Jezebel. And so Ahab marries Jezebel, all right? Now, Jezebel is someone who, who she is, she's an evangelist, right? She is zealous for her religion, only problem is... She's an evangelist for Baal, not for Yahweh. Who's Baal? Baal is the, the dominant Canaanite deity, right? The, the dominant deity of the surrounding nations. Right, he's referred to as the storm god. He's, he's thought to be responsible for life-giving rain. Right? And she is zealous for Baal. We, we learn later in this section that in the king's palace, she obviously takes residence there as, as the queen, uh, we learn that at the table uh, she has 450 prophets of Baal. Now, two things. One, that's a very long table. 450 prophets. I imagine there must be different seating times. Uh, but the point there is, right, second thing, is that she's really concerned, she's a zealot for Baal, for her, her religion. Uh, but the second thing there we see also is that we learn that she is someone who is not happy to be syncretistic right, in religion. What I mean by that, she's not happy to have Baal and Yahweh. Right? She wants Yahweh to be done away with. We know this, right, because... We learn later in this section that she's actually, she slaughters the prophets of the Lord, right? She is antagonistic towards Yahweh and his prophets. But Ahab doesn't mind, right? Ahab's not rebuking her, uh, not, not correcting her. Why? Because Ahab, Ahab is right there with her. We learn that Ahab served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab here, who is the king of the people of God, he has rejected Yahweh. He has rejected worship of him. Sixty years earlier to this point, we see Solomon build a temple for the Lord for the people to worship the Lord. And now we see Ahab build a temple, not for Yahweh, but for Baal, and creates an altar so the people can worship Baal. You can see the decline of Israel here. You can see the kind of king that Ahab is. He's rejected Yahweh. He builds a temple to worship Baal. His wife, the queen, is slaughtering the prophets. You can see the state that Israel is in and the, the, the level of covenant breaking that Ahab is responsible for. Then the final verse in chapter 16 gives us an indication, I guess, of the attitude that Ahab had towards the, word, towards the word of the Lord. It reads this, In his day, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. 
seems like a bit of a strange verse. So what's it doing there? It's there to kind of indicate to us how Ahab is negligent or, or is unaware of the commands of God. Now, he is meant to be the, the king of the people of God. He ought to know the word of the Lord, but he simply doesn't. What happens here is Hiel uh, and his construction crew rock up to Jericho to rebuild the city. They lay the foundation, put the slab down, and his firstborn son dies. Now, at that point, you'd think that maybe Hiel would reconsider and go, we missed something here. What's, what's going on? Is there something else? You'd think perhaps Ahab, as the king of the people, responsible for his people, would go, hold on, have we missed something? Is there some sort of command? Is there some sort of prohibition against what we're doing here? But no, they plow straight ahead, right? And, and the construction crew then builds the gates and builds the walls, and then the secondborn of Hiel dies as well. Now, what Ahab ought to have known and led the people in is that when, when God's people entered the Promised Land, into Canaan, you'll remember that the walls of Jericho, by an act of power from the Lord, came tumbling down, right? They fell, they fell. And, and God instructs his people, he commands them, right, to never rebuild the city of Jericho. And if they were to rebuild the city of Jericho, when they lay the foundation, it would be the cost of the firstborn, and if they continued to rebuild the gates right, and the walls, it would cost them their lastborn son. It is clear, right? God has given clear warning to not do this, and yet uh, Hiel, under the direction of Ahab, proceeds straight ahead. There is no regard for the word of the Lord. There is an attitude of, of dis, uh, disregard, for all that the Lord has warned them. And so we see here, right, Ahab is a king who has rejected Yahweh and has rejected his word. He is an evil and wicked king. But there is something for us to take from these verses when it comes to the description of Ahab's reign. You see, Ahab, is, as the king of Israel, right, he ought to have had his worldview shaped more by the Lord and his word than the world and its wisdom. But instead, we see consistently throughout his reign, right, when challenges come, right, when there's, there's pressing questions, he turns not to the Lord, and to the Lord's word to shape his thinking and shape his feeling and shape his, and shape his strategy. But rather, he turns to the surrounding nations. He turns to the world and its wisdom. And Israel, that ought to be uh, unique, right, ought to be a light to the nations, becomes just like the nations. And there's a word for us there as well, because as God's people, if you call yourself a Christian, right, we ought to, our worldview, right, how we think about ourselves, the world, what's important, the future, ought to be more shaped by the Lord and his word than the world that we live in and, uh, and its wisdom. And we have to honestly reflect on that and say, do I, do I look distinct? Is my conduct and my thinking, am I distinct to the world around me? Or am I more influenced by the world and its wisdom? And when challenges come, right? So Ahab here is, is faced with this incoming military threat potentially through Assyria. And what does he do when faced with a challenge? He doesn't first turn to the Lord and his word, but he turns to the neighboring nations. He turns to the world and its wisdom. And we too are faced with that same challenge when fears come, when insecurities come, when, when problems and pain come, who do we turn to? As God's people, the encouragement for us is to turn to the Lord and his word, not the world and its wisdom. And so the first thing we see here is the rebellion of Ahab, a king who has rejected the Lord, whose wife is slaughtering the prophets of God, who, who he then builds a temple for Baal, uh, and he breaks the covenant of the Lord. Now, the second thing we have to see in these chapters, right, is the revelation of God to Elijah, to Ahab. Now, Ahab here, although a wicked and evil king, God is kind and gracious and continues to reveal himself to, to Ahab. And the first way we see that is through the prophet Elijah. And so in chapter 17, it's all really about Elijah. At the end of chapter 16, we meet Ahab, we see he's a man, right, who has rejected the Lord and it leads to death and destruction. And now, in chapter 17, we meet Elijah, a prophet of the Lord. Now, we don't know too much about him, but his name actually indicates what his 
role and identity is. Right? So Elijah, the word means Eli, Yah, which means Eli. So Eli is my God, and Yah is kind of short for Yahweh. And so his name essentially is saying, my God is Yahweh. And that is his life mission as a prophet of the Lord, is to, to help a wayward Israel, a wayward king, King Ahab, return to that foundational truth that my God is Yahweh. The first thing we see him do is approach Ahab and predict a drought. In verse 1 he says this, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. He confronts Ahab and he predicts a drought. Now what in the world's going on here? Well you have to remember, right, that the, the God that Israel now serves, Baal, is thought to be the storm god responsible for life-giving rains. And so God comes through Elijah in judgment of Ahab and the people's uh, false worship and says there's going to be a drought for three years. And that drought was, was designed to do kind of two things. One, it's designed to, to show the people the foolishness of trusting in Baal, show the impotence of this false god Baal when there is no rain for three years. The apparent storm god is powerless and it ought to lead the people and King Ahab into repentance of their sin and idolatry into worship of the true and living God. But the other thing it's doing here, right, if, if Ahab was switched on and knew his Bible, right, which was the Torah in this day, he ought to have known that God promised punishment of a drought if the people... Right, broke the covenant, if the people worshipped idols. That's exactly what happens under Ahab, and that is exactly what Elijah is pronouncing here. He's predicting a drought. Now, when Elijah comes to Ahab with this word of judgment, no surprises, Ahab is not a fan of this judgment, and he is after Elijah. Elijah is now a marked man, and he has to go into hiding. And the remainder of chapter 17, we can't go into detail, but the remainder of, of, of 17 really is about God providing for and protecting his prophet. We see him leading Elijah into the wilderness where he provides food and drink. He provides food by a raven, meat and bread by morning and night. There's a, there's a stream that provides water for him. And there's a real parallel here that we ought to see as the reader between Israel when they were in the wilderness after being freed from slavery in Egypt and Elijah here, God's prophet, in the wilderness in hiding but provided for and protected by, uh, by the Lord. After that, we see him then led into Zarephath, which is this Gentile town in Sidon. And once again, as the reader, we ought to be shocked by this. God is bringing his prophet into a Gentile land. And yet, even in that, right, God provides for Elijah. God cares for him. We see this episode where Elijah brings the word of the Lord to a widow. Um, and we see a widow provide food for him. I encourage you to read that in your own time. And the, the chapter finishes with Elijah raising this widow's son to life again. There's lots there, but the, essentially the, the point of chapter 17, we can summarize by the final verse in chapter 17, where this widow says, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. We meet Ahab, chapter 16, wicked king, rejects the Lord, rejects his word. Chapter 17, we have Elijah, and he is God's prophet. He believes in the Lord, he believes in his word, and we see that his word brings life. Now the stage is set for chapter 18, all right, where we see Elijah return after three years. Okay, he returns to Ahab, uh, and, and he essentially says, enough's enough. Let's do a God v. God challenge. Let's see who is really God here. It's essentially a God contest. So pick up with me in verse 12 of chapter 18. So when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, 
and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Who here watches Survivor? A few more. Not a very popular show in our church, obviously. There you go. I'm a big fan of Survivor. And you may not know, but in terms of the being voted off process, uh, there's this thing called tribal council, right? And everyone votes for someone, and the person with the most votes goes home. Now, sometimes when the votes are tied, something else happens. For those who raise their hands, if the vote's tied, how do they decide who gets sent home? Fire challenge. All right. Now, this is like the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Survivor's Fire Challenge right here in our passage this morning. Elijah essentially comes to Ahab and he says, enough, enough. Let's see who is truly God. Let's do a fire challenge. And here are the terms of the challenge. We pick it up in verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves, as the prophets of Baal, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, which is the altar, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. Pretty simple challenge, right? There's an altar. They've got two bulls that have been sacrificed. They cut up the pieces of the bull, put them on their respective altars. They pray to their God and see who answers by fire. Elijah, being respectful, lets the prophets of Baal go first. And we, uh, we learn in the passage that from mornings, let's say 6 a.m. roughly, to noon, they cry out to Baal, these prophets of Baal. They cry out to him to, to respond to them, to, to send fire. And you've got to love Elijah. He's a boldness in the Lord. By, by noon, he begins to mock them because nothing happens, right? In verse 27, it says this, And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. He essentially is just throwing chat at the prophets of Baal. Right? He's just having a go at them. And you've got to just respect his confidence right, in the Lord's ability to, to, to demonstrate who he truly is. In response to this, they cry out aloud again, and now they take to cutting themselves, and they hope that by spilling blood, it will provoke Baal to respond with fire. But lo and behold, nothing happens. No fire, no voice, no response. Now, it's Elijah's turn. But first, he wants to raise the stakes of the challenge. Okay, so there's the wooden altar, there's the cut up pieces of ball on top of the altar. But before he cries out to the Lord, he says, dig a trench around the altar. And so the, the trench is dug. And he says, get a, get a big jug of water and pour it over the ball, the altar, the trench. Not once, not twice, but three times. Absolutely saturate this apparatus. Make it almost impossible for this thing to be you know, lit for fire to come and burn this thing up. Only then does he then cry out to the Lord. And we pick it up in verse 36. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We see here Yahweh demonstrate in power through the prophet Elijah that He and He alone is the one true and living God. He shows the impotence, the foolishness, the weakness of Baal, this so-called God who's no God at all. And after demonstrating Himself, vindicating Himself, He then sends rain, breaking the three-year drought at the, uh, in response to Elijah's prayer, just as He had predicted. 
And in response to all of this, we see the people say that they see their, their error, right? They see the folly of worshiping Baal. They say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But the question we ought to be thinking at this point is, well, how does Ahab respond? The people seem to be responding pretty well to this demonstration of power. Uh, but how does Ahab respond? And we have to imagine what Elijah would be thinking at this point. Right? He spent three years in hiding, essentially. He's returned. He's seen the Lord work in an incredible way on Mount Carmel, uh, being used by God to kind of demonstrate, prove unequivocally that Baal is a false god, that Yahweh is the true and living God. He's thinking now is the time, after years of Ahab and Jezebel leading the people in a stray into idol worship, now is the time that they'll repent, they'll return to the Lord, they'll thank me as, as a prophet of the Lord for, for you know, revealing their sin and getting them back on the right track. And we learn he comes off the mountain, he goes to Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is the capital, right? That's where the king's palace is. It's as though he's confident he's going to arrive into the, into the palace with this sort of welcome and this thank you now that, the, now that Ahab sees the light, so to say. But unfortunately, that's not how things go. In chapter 19, we see that Jezebel and Ahab, they debrief the events that took place at Mount Carmel. And instead of being broken in repentance, they're furious at Elijah. They're angry at him. They want to kill him. And Elijah gets wind of this as he's en route to see them at the palace uh, in Jezreel. And he, he learns that he, now he's a marked man again. They're after him. They want to kill him. And so we see here that God is gracious at Mount Carmel in revealing himself through Elijah by fire for Ahab to see the folly of his ways. And yet he does not repent. Now very quickly, I want to just explain a little bit about what Elijah does now. The sermon's not about Elijah, it's about Ahab, but this is too good to kind of pass over. So very quickly, in chapter 19, we essentially see Elijah depressed. Literally, he's, at, he's, he's in the wilderness, and he asks the Lord to take, to take his life. He's at the end of himself. He's in despair. He is confused. Right? He's essentially having a crisis of faith. He's been used by God mightily, but things haven't turned out as he thought. He is once again a marked man fleeing for his life. And the Lord ministers to him, gives him a nap first, then gives him food and water. Uh, and in the strength of that food, he then goes to Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb, you might not be familiar with, but often in the Old Testament, Mount Horeb is called something else. It's called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, if you're a switched-on Bible reader, you'll know comes, well, God revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments. And so the Lord is going to meet Elijah here in his pit of despair on Mount Horeb at Mount Sinai. And whilst Elijah is there, and we have to remember his state, right? He is down in the dumps. He doesn't know, you know what the Lord is up to here. He can't see it. He can see no good in all of this. And something really interesting happens. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, the Lord will meet with you, right, on this mountain. And it says this in chapter 19, verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Elijah here is in the pit of despair, confused, unsure what the Lord is doing at the end of himself. And the Lord turns up, not in the spectacular, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but rather he turns up with his voice, with his word. And the Lord's teaching him sort of two things here. He's saying, yes, I'm a God who can act in great power like you witnessed at Mount Carmel, 
but my power ultimately rests in my word. He's also saying to him here, what you need most is not the spectacular, but you need my voice, you need my word. That's what's going to minister to you. That's what's going to help you in your pit of discouragement and depression. You see, some people, uh, you may have heard people say this, look, if the Lord just turned up in some massive way, if I just saw some crazy miracle, then I'd believe. Well, the Bible says you probably wouldn't, right? It's very clear, right, from this miracle at Mount Carmel that the Lord is, that Yahweh is the one true and living God, and yet Ahab does not repent. And there are examples after example in the Bible of people seeing God work powerfully, and yet the, the extent of sin, or the reality of sin is such that it's not rejecting a God we don't know. Sin, the heart of sin is actually rejecting the God we do know. But deep down, we do know that God is real, even if you say he is not, and we reject the God that we know. So The first thing we see there is, yes, God works in the spectacular, but often God works through his word, through his voice. If you're here this morning and you want to hear from the Lord, you want to see him, you know, experience him, we do not look for the spectacular signs, but rather we turn to his voice. How do we hear his voice? We hear it in his word. And as God comes to him and ministers to him, and encourages him with his word, we see this is what he says. The Lord says to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He essentially says, Lord, what are you doing? We had this great plan, we did the whole Mount Carmel thing, and they still haven't repented. Ahab is still trying to kill me. And the Lord comes to him and says, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. That's wild. You know why? It's because God says, I know this isn't your plan, Elijah, that things aren't working according to what you think should be happening, but I do have a plan, Elijah, and here's my plan. Go and anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. Here's what's wild. Syria is a Gentile pagan nation. Haziel is a pagan country, right? A pagan king, sorry. And there's no indication in the Bible that Haziel becomes a, a worshipper of Yahweh. What's the point? God's saying to Elijah, I'm at work in ways that you would never imagine. Right? Elijah thinks that God's lost the plot, that there's no plan, etc. And the Lord's saying, no, no, no. I'm at work, Elijah. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're like Elijah, right? You've, uh, you're doing great things for the Lord. You're being faithful in service of him. But your life is sort of characterized by pain and suffering and you're confused and you're in the pit of despair. Well, in the same way that the Lord comes to Elijah and says, I know you can't see it, but I'm at work and I'm doing way more than you can think in ways that are mysterious to you. The Lord comes to you this morning and says, because of what Christ has done, God is for you. Right? He is at work in your life, even when you can't see it. In the middle of the confusion, in the middle of the despair, in the middle of the depression. He is doing more than you can think. And one day in heaven, you'll look back with a fully glorified uh, mind and see all the ways the Lord has been at work. And you will praise him for his great wisdom. And there is great encouragement there for us to take. The Lord is at work in more ways than you can see. But the point here is that Elijah uh, is used by God to reveal God to Ahab, and yet Ahab does not repent. We see a second episode then in the life of Ahab where God reveals himself to him. And this is in the, a series of battles. And so chapter 20 is all about the war that, that Syria has with Israel. And Ahab is the king of Israel, is the commander of, of, of the army. And the first thing we just see is that Israel should never have stood a chance against Syria. They're a much more powerful army, Right? They should have absolutely wiped them to oblivion. And yet, 
the Lord is gracious. We're kind of expecting at this point in the narrative that maybe God will use Syria to, as, a, as an agent of judgment against his people. But he's not. He doesn't. He's gracious and he uses them. Uh, he, he's at work. He, he helps Israel um, to defeat the Syrians. But then we see at the back half of the chapter, the Syrians kind of regroup and they say, how the heck did we lose that? And they go, the reason why we lost that battle was because the war was had in the hills. And you know, the Israelites, their God is the God of the hills. But... He's not the God of the plain. And so, here's the grand plan. If we can have the battle right, in the plain, not the hills, then we'll defeat them. Because their God's not a God of the hills. Sorry, the plain, he's the God of the hills. And in response to this, and that's what they do, right? They regather the troops and they head out to, to war again against Israel. And this time, not in the hills, but in the plain. And a man of God comes to Ahab and he says this. Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. He comes to, Elijah, to, to Ahab sorry, and says, I will demonstrate again that I am the true and living God. There's no way in the world you should win this battle. And yet, because they have said that I'm not the God of the valleys, only the God of the hills, I want to show you that I am the God of not just the valleys, not just the hills, I'm the God of everyone and everything. And that's exactly what happens. The Lord is with Ahab, he is with the army, and they are victorious over Syria when they really should not have been. Again, God in his kindness reveals himself to Ahab. And there's a real word for us here as well. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're kind of like the Syrians. You kind of look around your world, you have friends and family members who are Christians, and you're like, well, it's good for them that they sort of worship God, but I don't believe in God. The sense in which you're saying what the Syrians said, you know, God's the God of the, the hills, but he's not the God of the valleys, he's not, he's not my God. <laughs> and the Christian response is, whether or not you realize it, or you worship him, God is God of your life. God has made you. He's given you life and breath and everything, and you are accountable to him. And the reality is that we have all sinned against him, and we are responsible for our sin. There is good news, and that's coming. But the first point to see here is that God is not assigned to some sort of part or some people. It's not just that, oh, God's the God of Christians. No, God is the God of everyone. And even for Christians, the teaching here for us is we can be like the Syrians too, right? In our life, we can have the hills and the valleys, right? God's the God of the hills. This part of my life, I'm happy for God to be God. But then there's the valleys, right? There's the parts of my my life that I'm I'm pretty happy just to kind of run myself and not uh, take heed of the Lord's uh, rule and reign in those particular areas. What we learn here is that God is not just the God of the hills, but of the valleys too. The challenge for the Christian, the encouragement, is that all of life ought to be lived with God as king. He is the God of all, all life. But once again, we see Ahab here, in response to this great revelation, not respond in repentance. Until we get to chapter 21. So the third thing we need to see is the, is the repentance of, of Ahab. Now, I'll summarize this pretty quickly, but in chapter 21, we meet a guy called Naboth. He's a Jezreelite, he's an Israelite. Right, he actually owns a vineyard right next to the king's palace. Ahab, the king, looks out his window, sees the vineyard of Naboth and says, what a great vineyard, I want that. He's the king, he's used to getting what he wants. And so he meets with Naboth and he says, I want your vineyard. I'll pay you good money, I'll get you a better vineyard somewhere else. And, and Naboth says, no. And Ahab can't deal with that. Ahab wants it, he's the king, he ought to get it. And so he leaves dejected, depressed. And Queen Jezebel, his wife, comes to him and says, look, you shouldn't be so upset, you can do something about this. You're the king. Use your power, use your authority, do something about it. And so they scheme and devise a plan to get Ahab what he wants. 
Now, it's primarily Jezebel's plan, but Ahab is complicit in this plan. And what's the plan? Let's call a fast, okay? And that's an occasion for all the people to get together. And we're going to set uh, Naboth at the head of the table and put beside him two lawless men. They will bring before the people this charge of blasphemy against Naboth. Why? Because they know that the, 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 the penalty for that false accusation is death by stoning. That's exactly what happens. Ahab and Jezebel use their power to make this happen. A false accusation is leveled against, uh, against Naboth and he is stoned. Tragic. Horrible misuse of power and authority from uh, Ahab and, and Jezebel. And as soon as Ahab hears of Naboth's death, guess what he does? He's not remorseful at the time. He just assumes ownership of the vineyard, off he goes, happy days. It's an act of evil by a king. And the Lord comes to him through Elijah and says just that. You know, this is evil, and he pronounces judgment on him. But surprisingly, at this point in the narrative, Ahab actually repents. We read in verse 27 that he, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the Lord says, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. This promised judgment, the Lord said, would be, uh, would be Ahab's. He says, now I'm going to delay and put it on your son, the next generation, because of your repentance. Now, is this kind of a, a fully orbed, genuine repentance? Well, probably not, right? But you kind of see the rest of his rule and reign not characterized by a spirit of repentance, Okay, the, the, he eventually dies in the next chapter, a shameful death in battle, and the summary of his, of his reign at the end of uh, chapter 22 speaks more of his wickedness all right, and his, his leading the people astray than this sort of repentant humility. All right, but this is a high point in, in Ahab's reign where he repents and he sees his sin for what it is, at least for a moment, all right, and, and acts repentant. And what we see here, I guess, is the Lord's valuing of repentance, right? The, Lord, the judgment the Lord had pronounced on Ahab is delayed on account of his repentance. I'll invite the band up now as we uh, draw this to a conclusion. See, what is repentance, right? Repentance is, is kind of being able to go, look, I've got the most fundamental reality about life, who God is, completely wrong. It's when, if you're a Christian this morning, this has happened to you at some point. You've gone from sort of knowing about sin intellectually at some sort of concept, but it's moved from the head to the heart. You've gone, oh, heck, I am a sinner. It's, it moves from a level of debate around what sin actually is, and it's more of an experiential reality. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God. I'm in, I'm in deep trouble. That is what repentance is. It's the gateway into the Christian life. And we see here that God is a God of great mercy. Even though Ahab's repentance is not a full, fully-fledged, genuine repentance, even still, there is this delaying of judgment that he deserves. But the reality is that Ahab is a wicked king, Right, we could pretty much summarize these chapters this morning by saying Ahab sucked. Right? He leads the people astray. There's this one little high note, but it doesn't seem to be continued in the rest of his life as king. And in one sense, look, Ahab and the rest of the kings of Israel really do form the kind of dark backdrop on which the light of the true promised king shines all the more brightly. Because the thing with this repentance here that God gives to well, Ahab's repentance, the, the fruit of that is delayed judgment. But there is a better repentance on offer in the gospel. There is a repentance that will not just delay judgment that you and I deserve. There is a repentance available in the gospel that will actually remove judgment that we're deserving of. How so? Well, look, there's actually a king 
a coming king, the true king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. And he is altogether different to Ahab. In Ahab, we see a man who uses his authority and his power, right, selfishly to get what he wants, even at the expense of his people's life. Naboth is a casualty in him getting what he wants. He uses his power for great evil. In the Lord Jesus, we see the true king. A king has all authority. And he's a king who uses his authority. He lays it down. He lays down his life for our sake. Jesus, too, is interested in a vineyard, but in an altogether different way than what Ahab is. Ahab wants the vineyard, right, and at the expense of Naboth's life. Jesus wants us to partake in the vineyard that is the kingdom of heaven, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get us there, even at the expense of his own life. The repentance on offer in the gospel. Right? When we repent of our sin, we truly see it, we confess, we trust in the promise of salvation through the Lord Jesus. You know what happens? The judgment that we deserve is given to Jesus. So how is it that right, this judgment can be totally dealt with? Well, you remember back to Elijah at Mount um, Sinai, and, and the earthquake comes, and the fire comes, and the wind comes. In the Old Testament, that is the signs of judgment. That's God coming in judgment. So how is it, right, that Elijah can be on the mountain seeing God's signs of judgment and survive? Well, he is covered. He's shielded by the rock. And that rock is a big arrow pointing forward to the true rock. Jesus. Jesus is the rock. He's the one who, how do we not get judged or receive the judgment we deserve? Because Jesus at the cross Right? takes the judgment upon himself. It's hard to read the story of Naboth without thinking about Jesus. Right? He's a guy who's falsely accused of blasphemy. He is at the side or between two lawless men. Sound familiar? Gross miscarriage of justice. Right? This is Jesus. He uses his authority right, to orchestrate events in such a way that land him at the cross. Why? Because only at the cross can he use his authority as king to do what is necessary to make us restored to relationship, to to bring in the kingdom, for us to be be a part of that kingdom. Jesus dies, right? He takes upon himself judgment. Not his own, he was perfect, but ours. And in doing that, right, he now offers us to repent and believe and to be a part of his kingdom. As we prepare for Christmas and prepare to celebrate the coming of the Christ, it's a great opportunity to spend time in the book of Kings, right, to consider uh, how these kings fail. But ultimately, they point us to Christ, and we see the beauty and the magnificence of of who Christ truly is. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for uh, these chapters before us. There's lots there, Lord, uh, but there's lots of encouragement there. There's lots to see in terms of how they point us towards Christ. Lord, we're thankful that Christ uses his authority for our good, for our sake. He doesn't uh, exercise authority uh, in such a way that other people's lives are costed. Brother, he lays his own life down for our sake, that we can gain entry into the vineyard of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, as we prepare for Christmas and look ahead, may you help us to rejoice all the more in the coming King, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.